0: reading of God's Word is found in 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn there if you would to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be reading not quite as far along as uh, it says in the bulletin. We're going to read through verse 18 and begin at verse 8. 1 Peter 3 8 through 18. Lord willing next week we'll look at the rest of the chapter. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to focus our attention on verse 18 this morning. I think this is probably one of any number of individual verses that succinctly capture the gospel message. If you look at that verse with me this morning, I think you'll probably agree with that. There are other verses that perhaps come to mind. What One verse in the Bible, if you had to pick one, would express the gospel clearly and sufficiently. I'm sure that John 3.16 comes to mind for many of you, and that's certainly a great verse. But this one is not as well known, but I think it's certainly one that is rich and worthy of our consideration under this idea of uh, the gospel message in one verse. So let's think about that, and let's think in terms of the good life, the blessings that God gives us, because of the good news of the gospel. We've read here about those who desire good life, looking at verses uh, three through eight, <clears throat> uh, uh, excuse me, three, chapter three, verses eight through 12 that we just read. You've got there sort of a summary of all the, the ways that Christians should be living a holy life. And you see these very things in other parts of the Bible. Psalm, uh, one of the Psalms is quoted here directly as we look at that. It's from Psalm 34 verses 12 through 16 and you see it in verses 10 through 12. So he's reading here uh, or giving us for reading and hearing how we are to realize the the work of the Lord in our hearts and, and what we aim for as we seek to please God and glorify him in our personal lives. A righteous life is really what he's talking about here. Now that's important in thinking about a righteous life because of what verse 18 will tell us about the source of our righteous life. So keep that in mind. Being right with God results in God-like character. Being right with God results in godlike character. And so he describes that character here. But it's not only a righteous life. The Christian life is also a suffering life. And Peter has made that one of his major themes. We've seen that repeatedly as we've gone through this book. A suffering life. And so in verses 13 through 17, he talks about that. And he's discussed this before. That we are to expect suffering from the unbelieving world. And that suffering is a result of our living for Christ. So don't think of suffering just in terms of being sick uh, or uh, losing a loved one. All of that is suffering, to be sure. But he's narrowing narrowing the focus here to suffering specifically because of our faithfulness to Christ. And our faithfulness to Christ, the more faithful we are, the more we'll stand out. The brighter the light, the more it shines in the darkness, and the more the darkness will respond to it. And we see that, we've seen that this week, haven't we? Darkness can lead to dark deeds, unthinkable deeds, unspeakable grief that results from that. So he's emphasizing that here. We're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. That should sound familiar. Jesus' beatitude. Blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, he talks about that. Jesus himself said, If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Who are my disciples? Again, all of this is, a, is leading up to this 18th verse. And it's designed in my mind to tell you that the good news of the gospel is not simply good news as we think of it. It's the best news. You hear news all the time. Every day we hear about news. And we see videos of things that happen. <clears throat> This week, I saw a a story about uh, people, uh, kids uh, who were going to college. And the videos were taken of these kids that got the letter, the letter from the college that they wanted to go to to let them know that they have been accepted into that college. And so in these videos, you have these. young women and young men reading the letter and seeing what it says near the beginning of the letter and they jump up and down with joy and they hug and everybody's excited and screams and yells and is so happy because of the good news that what that they just read but then when they read a little further down some of them will find out not only were they accepted in the college but they're getting a full scholarship, a full ride. So that's where the good news in terms of collegiate life turns into the best news. It was good enough when it started. That was great, but this is even better. So it is with the gospel. The gospel, the word for gospel, has to do with good news, literally means good news. And that good news really is the best news you and I will ever hear. I've heard people talk about how I'm just going to quit watching the news. It's just so depressing. (laughs) There's not a whole lot of good news in it. Turn to your Bible and read it. Your Bible tells you about a holy God, sinful people, and what God has done in Jesus Christ to remedy our sin. So let's notice here uh, how this breaks down and just all I'll do is just briefly mention each of these leading up to our uh, coming to the Lord's table. Number one there, the gospel tells us what Christ did. We all understand Jesus died on the cross. He suffered and he died. If you look at verse 18, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. All of these words are really important. This is such a compact statement here. Every word is important. Christ suffered, and that word could also be taken to mean died. He suffered all the way up to the point of death. And he died on the cross. And he did it once for sins. He didn't just die to show how much he loved us. If you stop there, you're, you're, you're taking that good news and not seeing how it is the best news. He suffered and died for sinful people. The death of Christ was a historic fact. There were many witnesses there. And if you didn't think that Jesus really died on the cross, that he suffered a lot, but they took him down before he actually died, think again, because the Roman soldier right there near the end of his death took his spear and thrust it into Jesus' side. And John says, blood and water came out. He was truly put to death. He actually really died. If news cameras had been there in those days, they would have had that on the news because that's how real it was. We don't need to treat this as just a a wonderful, sweet story. This is history being recorded by four different writers based on the people who were either there or actually or who were there and then told some of the gospel writers about it. Peter, of course, was there. He knows what happened. He's writing as an eyewitness. Now, there's a stress here on the fact that he died once. For Christ also suffered once for sins. That's important, too. Because there are those who believe that Jesus either didn't die at all, as I said, but there are also those who believe that Jesus dies many times. In the Roman Catholic Mass, that is the way they understand communion. Now let me give you an example of that. This is a direct quote from the Catholic, Roman Catholic Catechism. The same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unholy, excuse me, in an unbloody manner and this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. Propitiation, of course, means turning away the wrath of God. Notice that that quotation says he offered himself once, yes, on the bloody manner, but At the Mass, the altar of the cross is contained and is offered, is offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice, the Mass, is an actual sacrifice of Christ again. I came across a a little piece of information that I thought was helpful. There was a Roman Catholic priest who once asked why Jesus had to continue dying over and over again in the mass. The priest said, it's because once you take communion, it doesn't wipe away future sins. You have to take it again to help purge your future sins. So you have to do this over and over because you keep sinning over and over. It's a good thing that they say that in the sense that they understand Christians still sin, but it's not a good thing to say that Christ's death is sort of react, reenacted, not in a literal sense uh, that we can see, but in a real sense in that that's how they understand it. It's an unbloody sacrifice. So there's, that results in a lack of assurance. It's like, you know, you've got to keep coming back to the cross for Christ to re-save you and die again for the, the most recent sins you've committed. But Peter says once. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see once over and over again. I won't read all those verses for you, but it says that several times, four or five times in Hebrews. Once. Christ died once when Jesus breathes his last, John, the gospel writer says, Jesus said, it is finished. A very strong term that he uses there. It's done, it's complete. There's nothing else that needs to be done. You can have assurance of your salvation without having to think that Christ has to die afresh for your latest sins. And so we trust that God has finished once and for all what was necessary on the cross for our salvation? He did it as an act of justice, because Peter says here, "the righteous for the unrighteous." Jesus said, "It's not the righteous who need repentance, uh, who need uh, salvation. They're righteous already. My salvation is offered to the unrighteous, to the unjust." Because there's really nobody who is righteous in themselves. There's none who does good. No, not one, says the psalmist, repeated in Romans. Righteousness is what we need. And that means a right standing with God, where God will accept us in his holy presence because we have been given a righteous status, justification, justification. We are justified, declared righteous by faith. I said, it's a legal judicial act. I declare you righteous because when you gave your unrighteousness to Jesus, he gave you in return his righteous status or standing. Yes, you continue to sin, but those sins are pardoned at the cross. You confess those sins as you sin not to be For Jesus to die again for them, but for you to receive the blessing of God's saying to you, you are forgiven. The gospel. This fact is critical for Christians and non-Christians. The gospel tells us what Christ did. That means you and I can't do anything to merit our salvation. We have no... Ability to do that because all our righteousness is as filthy rags as Isaiah says in his sight. No matter how good they are in our minds or how good they look to other people on a human level. Yeah, they're they're good when we, you know, help each other and do things like that. But in the mind of God, our hearts are not right with him. So nothing is really pleasing to him apart from Christ. The second thing there, God tells us why Christ did it. Very simple, to bring us to God. To bring us to God. Why do we need to be brought to God? Because we're far away from him when we are in our sin and when you don't know salvation yet. Your sins have separated you from God. Again, Isaiah talks about that. We're separated from God. And we need to be brought into the presence of God. We need to be brought into the family of God. That's what the gospel is telling us. Jesus came to bridge that insurmountable gap that separated us from God. It's like standing on one side of the Grand Canyon and Jesus is on the other side. How do you get there? Well, of course, if you're, excuse me, if you know a lot about the Grand Canyon, you can say, well, I can take a helicopter, or I can get in my car and drive all the way around to the other side. I don't know how long that would take, depending on where you were. But for our point, it's impossible to get to the other side. The only way we can get to the other side in our relationship with God is through the cross of Christ. He has brought us near. Ephesians 2 talks about that. You who are far off have been brought near. Romans 5 2. We have access to God through Christ. We are able to come to God now because of Christ. Christ. Just think about that. Christ brought us to God. He brought us to God so that at any time we can come to God. We can come to him and worship like we're doing today. You're not just coming here to other people. You are coming here to God to worship him corporately. Where Jesus promised, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. Notice lastly, the gospel tells us how Christ did it. He brought us to God, yes. How did he do it? The end of the verse. He says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There's a principle here of death and life. It's a very powerful principle all through the Bible. If you look at verse 24, back in chapter 2 of Peter, <clears throat> He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Die, live. Right now, if you're not a Christian this morning, do you understand? You are spiritually dead. You have no spiritual life. And the only way you can have it is if God gives it to you. Many of us here can testify God caused me to be born again. It's a real thing. It's not just some emotional phase that we go through. We've been born again in our lives, our our outlook, our understanding, everything changes. And we are able to love God and love others. And so, death to life. He died to sin. Put to death in the flesh. His body was put to death. Now his spirit can't die. So there's a controversy here. Well, I would say a difference of understanding between Bible scholars about that word spirit. Some think it should be translated with a little s, like our spirits, our spiritual component Others think it should be a capital S, Holy Spirit. Well, I favor the second of those two, Holy Spirit. I will not uh, start World War III over that, but I would say that there's some good merit. There's merit for both, but I think there's greater merit for Holy Spirit, one of which is when he says, put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, our spirits can't die. But if you say Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that gave Jesus the power to be raised from the dead. That's actually told us in Romans 8, 11, that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And so with that principle, death and life, is the same principle for you and for me. We die to sin in order to live for righteousness, as chapter 2, verse 24 tells us. That means our ongoing experience of suffering and then God helping us through that suffering. That's, that's a form of living to righteousness in life. And all of the, the challenges that we face in life, Paul himself described it. Uh, I won't read it now, but Second Corinthians four ten through 12, he talks about we're constantly dying and constantly overcoming that in life. Through the sufferings. God works through our sufferings and brings us to the other side of those sufferings in one way or another. And one day they'll all be gone. We'll all be gone. One scholar said our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ is grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer death for our sake. Our willingness to suffer for Christ is grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer for our sake. That's how we get the boldness to stand tall for Christ, to be firm in our faith, to not wilt under pressure to compromise biblical truth. It's because of, the, of what Christ has done. What he's done for us is far greater than what we can ever do for him. But we do it because he is our Lord. And we are his people. What Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross was designed to change your life and my life for the best. The good news is the best news. <clears throat> it's the best news you'll ever hear. Stop waiting for the best news. You'll have wonderful good news of this different kinds in your life and sometimes bad news. But don't ever think there's a best news that's better than the gospel itself. If you believe in the one who is the subject of this good news, you will receive pardon for all your sins. You will be accounted as righteous in the sight of God. You will receive power from him to live a new kind of life, even a life that includes suffering for him. And ultimately, As we'll see next week, you'll be raised from the dead to live forever in glory with Christ and all who have believed in him. Love the the song by Sandra McCracken, We Shall Feast in the House of Zion. And You and I will. We will feast in the house of Zion one day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful and good that you are indeed our great savior. We thank you that Christ came so that he would offer his holy life as a living and dying sacrifice to pay the penalty our sins deserve. We thank you, Lord, for this unspeakable gift of grace. and Father, we pray that we will ever remember that as we encounter suffering so that we will remember even more and appreciate more what Christ has done for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.